Hi, I'm Jamar McNeil. I'm Anne-Marie Meadowake. And I'm Candy Palmiter from the Mi'kmaq Nation. But we are coming to you from the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. And welcome to a new episode of From Where We Stand, conversations on race and mental health in partnership with Bell Let's Talk. How they did believe this was motivated by hatred and the family targeted because they were Muslim. This was premeditated, pre-planned. We all talk about online hate, but you're saying that the pandemic in some way has been a hothouse of that and it's propagated it, heated it up. The uh, National Council of Canadian Muslims has called this a terrorist act and the Prime Minister called it a terrorist act today as well. You were just listening to some of the recent headlines and news coverage of hate crimes and attacks against the Muslim community in Canada. From schools to places of worship to transit, news of these attacks of hate have only increased in the past few years, in particular in the last year and a half. And so in today's episode, we're exploring Islamophobia and its impact on mental health. We'll hear from women who've experienced this firsthand. We will also have a psychotherapist who's going to tell us about the effects of Islamophobia on the mental health of people in the Muslim community. Yeah, I think, you know, what's going to really shock Canadians the most is to know that there are over 300 white supremacy groups in Canada, not the United States, in Canada. And, you know, they seem to be the same guys that are also unbelievably sexist. So it's quite often uh, Islamic women that are the target of all this hate. Yeah, Candy, you mentioned women. And, and, you know, we saw the the hate crimes happen in Quebec City at the mosque. We saw them against the Muslim family in uh, in London, Ontario. But in Alberta, nine attacks have been reported against Muslim women. That's just, uh, you know, that's in less than a year. And a lot of them were black Muslim women who are visibly Muslim, meaning they wear religious garb, either hijab mm. or other uh, religious insignia. So that's concerning in the community. It's concerning also in the community that it only gets talked about when there's a big headline, and that it goes away, and that we saw this in this last election, a lot of pushback from the Muslim community saying you show up uh, for the funerals, and you show up for the aftermath, and you use all the right words, but where is this in your policy? Like, how seriously as a country do we look at this issue of Islamophobia within Canada when we can look at it through crime stats and we can look at it through hate crime stats, why isn't it something that we discuss more and not only discuss, why isn't it something we're taking stronger action against? I always wonder why it seems like certain parties are more uh, inclined to address or maybe even um, ad- you know address those issues than others. It, I feel like just a human rights issue should be a a baseline issue for society. Like every single political party or everyone should really be on board with, hey, we need to get this under control. But it just seems like certain parties are, you know, willing to kind of turn a blind eye to it and others are a little more vocal about it. And it's like a gradient in Canada because there are more uh, political parties here. But we can never underestimate the power of the influence of the United States because if yeah. you look at from the moment President Trump came into power and how that changed public conversation, and then you look at the statistics that in the last five years, there's a 200% increase in Canada in active hate groups. That's because, you know, Trump let it be known that suddenly hate was in, hate was yeah. acceptable. And everybody who had been acting below the surface is now right out there. But lots of parties, you know, will talk about it. But when they go into power, you know, like Anne Marie said, none of them actually put into policy mm. what they talked about to get elected. I mean, I, I worked in government in Nova Scotia when the NDP came in finally, and I was so excited. I said to all my family and friends, oh my goodness, this is going to be so incredible. They got elected on the backs of BIPOC people, and then they wanted to keep that spot by uh, kowtowing, um, you know, to the far right. And so, in fact, I found I got less movement during that NDP government. That's when I resigned from government than I did during both conservative and liberal governments. So it's they're, they're all playing the game. Well, you know, from the from the BIPOC perspective, it, it, when you talk about political um, political processes and just really uh, apprehension to be politically active, one of the things is that it seems that it's cool to kind of say that you support BIPOC, but in policy, it's not so cool to actually uh, put those policies in place. And, you know, BIPOC communities are very sensitive to that. That's why a lot of people are just disengaged with politics. 
Well, and then that's the yeah. political lens on it. When you weave in the mental health lens, so if I am, uh, if I'm a visibly Muslim family, uh, woman, man, child, and I am walking on the streets of any town in this country, I know that there are people who look at me differently, and maybe to your point, Candy, feel like they can tell me they see me as other, they see me as different, and so the mental health toll on that. To, ha- to watch the leaders of our country show up at a press conference, say all the right language, but then when you walk on the street, know that you still are not protected in the same way. If you live in Quebec and you're living under the uh, secularism laws there, to feel that discrimination, which is how they feel, whether it's a discriminatory law or not in, pr- in theory, that is how it lands in the community. And the mental health toll of feeling afraid in a country you were born in because of a faith you have the right to follow takes an incredible, incredible toll. And we're going to talk to some of those people today. Yeah. The, the time after 9-11 was a, a remarkably tough time for, uh, for the, uh, the Islamic community. Uh, speaking of mental health, and one of the things that's great about this podcast is we always make sure to incorporate the proper support. It is important to note, however, that podcasts are not a form of medical treatment. They should not be seen as a substitute for therapy or of medication. So if you or someone you know resonates with these conversations, they're struggling with their mental health, please consult with a mental health provider. And these episodes do have sensitive content. So if you find any of these conversations triggering, please visit our show notes for helpline numbers and other resources. Absolutely. And to tell us her firsthand account is Shema Kraba, who's sharing her story of what life is like as a visibly Muslim woman living in Canada. Our first guest knows firsthand exactly what it feels like to be at the receiving end of anti-Muslim hate. I mean, it's something she's been dealing with basically all of her life. Author Shema Kraba joins us now to talk about some of those experiences and the stresses that come with being constantly vigilant about her safety. Thank you so very much for being on the show, Shema. Welcome. Thank you so much, Candy, for having me. I really appreciate it. So I want to start just a little bit after 9-11. I I remember flying right after 9-11, just as an Indigenous woman, I used to always use my status card because I I didn't want to recognize my passport uh, because as an Indigenous woman, I'm a a citizen of North America. And I remember my first checkpoint at the airport after 9-11, I got my passport out in a hurry because I was scared to death going through there. Um, So I just want you to talk a little bit about that time, you know, in school, what were some of the things that were being said to you by other children in that point? So I was around, like, this was probably closer to grade five, like when I when I remember 9-11 happening. And um, I lived at the time in Windsor, Ontario, so it was a border city with Detroit, and my parents both worked there. I remember, like, not too long after that, like maybe a couple years later, I actually went to a public school. So I had a really difficult time, like, integrating it was very, very difficult for me. I was always made fun of. My hijab was made fun of. Um, my teeth, my mouth, my eyes, everything was always nitpicked. I also had an accent because I came, like I used to live in Montreal, so I had a French accent when I spoke English at the time. Right. So I would get made fun of that, even Arabic. I had a really bad uh, stutter and speech impediment as well. So if I tried to defend myself or say something, it was very difficult for me to articulate it and to be able to actually get the words out. And so you, somebody who has a stuttering issue, they end up like repeating the, the word or even like a part of the word. And so it'd be like, duh, 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 what are you trying to say? You know, like, or buck teeth or oh, whatever, yeah. right? And stuff like that. Or um, your eyes are like golf balls or, you know, like it's just really horrible mm. things. So it definitely was very difficult to live that like as a kid like that's not supposed to be you're like you're supposed to go to school to get an education you're not supposed to go there and feel like you got to defend yourself and just be on survival mode you know what i mean and so i think for me that was detrimental like i didn't obviously understand i was in survival mode when i was a kid i just knew like every time i would go to school i'm always just like just so up like wound up you know what i mean like i even remember like in on the bus i would get like Pencil crayons get thrown at me on my hijab. 
I'd get, um, I, I had a rotten apple get thrown at me as well. Like it was really horrible. So it wasn't just the school. It was even like going to like school as well. Like it was just, it was not a pleasant experience at all. A war zone from the time you left your door. <laughs> Pretty much. And it's interesting because I've never been in a war-torn country, right? I was born and raised in Canada. Mm. So that's the irony behind that. But in and of itself, like, you know, even just being called a raghead or your dad's a terrorist, you know, like, and just like, yeah, how do you, like, you don't even know what the word terrorist means. Like, I remember for me, I never even knew what that was. I'm like, what's a terrorist, you know? And yeah. so I used to, oh, I used to have a dictionary to look up words because I didn't understand. I have a, like a very big vocab. So every time someone was saying something to me, unless it was something that I knew the word of, it was complicated. It was a big word. And so to read it and you're like, my dad's this thing. It's like, what? How? Like, you're so like, just confused befuddled it's like it's just it's just very it's a very scary time and imagine going to your parents saying that's cool someone called you a terrorist you know what i mean yeah it's just like it's so it's challenging for the parents too you know what i mean like just, yeah whether you know it or not they're dealing with stuff too yeah. in this post post 9-11 world and the intersectionality of uh, you know i had a, a horrible lisp as a child mm-hmm. and um and i know what that can feel like mm-hmm. so the intersectionality of that layered on with this post 9-11 world but i understand your mother made a decision at some point to uh, send you off to karate yeah. class so how did what kind of an impact did that have and uh what did it do for your mental health um, it played a huge role. So, like for me, like um, Windsor at the time, there was this. Uh, it was called Albert Mady uh, Karate, and he was a Shihan at the time. So it's greater than a sensei, um, and he was an incredible coach. The biggest thing for me was uh, Albert Mady. I, I want to just like dedicate. Sorry, let's <laughs> get emotional. But I got you. Don't worry. <laughs> Even though you know he was Arab, but he was he was a Christian, so we didn't share the same faith. But even though we were came from two different like Arabic countries, there was some there was a little bit of an identity there. And to see a strong Arab male, you know, even though he we sh- like were cousins in faith, um, he never hijab was never a limitation. He said, "Let uh, let that's other people's limitations on you, but you, you it's about you and what you think is your limitation." He's like, "I don't see that as a limitation," you know. Um, nice. And even when it comes to bullying, he talked about that he was very against like bullying, and he was always big on um, creating awareness around that. But even the biggest thing for me that I took away from him that I learned was it wasn't so much that I was upset at what was happening. I was kind of really sad about myself because I realized I internalized the fact that I really couldn't defend myself when somebody would try to like even verbally uh, like uh, say horrible things or even physically. I actually got into uh, like an altercation in eighth grade from a girl who tried to fight me. And it was very like, you know, uh, challenging like to experience Mm. that, you know? And so it's actually the knowledge of knowing that you can defend yourself. That's freeing, you know? Yeah. Because you, he always said like, if you're ever engaged like in an altercation somebody wants to fight you your goal isn't to fight actually you know when i teach you how to fight when i teach you how to it's not so that you could use it it's actually for you it's for your own discipline but you're trying to get yourself out of it you number one is your your word you try with your word to de-escalate the situation if you cannot and somebody does throw a hit or a kick your job is to try to block it i'm teaching you their body language i'm teaching you how to tell which just by the way they're carrying their body you know if they're going to throw a right punch or a right kick i remember him like when we went to tournament there was a, mon- a tournament in montreal they refused me to actually uh participate because of my hijab and he actually stood up for me and he even signed and had me my well technically my parents sign off that in case something was to happen and i was somehow to sustain an injury because of my hijab that it would it, they wouldn't be liable, you know? And I remember even saying that yeah. the ponytail coming out of the girl's headgear, like that could probably be yeah. a flash more than her hijab, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And so I remember him that doing that, yeah. 
It's crazy all these, uh, f- you know, these phony risks that they come up with to try to hem you in. But look, I, I want to jump forward yeah. because I want to make sure we get this in before uh, our time is through. Yeah. Because I, I think those obvious things, you know, um, non-BIPOC Canadians get that. But it's those little microaggressions oh, yeah. that they don't seem to get. And they don't seem to get the fact that it's like death by a hundred cuts. So yeah. I, I want to jump forward to when you were working in retail okay. as an adult Yes, and ha- you know, how customers behaved when they saw you behind the counter. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I worked for an electronic uh, store, a retail store. Um, and first of all, it's very difficult to find a female in that role, much less a Muslim female. But yep. um, so getting the job was already in of itself a bit of a challenge, but I was very grateful because it was my first like real job. Um, I found it very difficult to do my job initially because every time a customer would come in, it would always be like, where's the manager? I'll speak to the manager. I'll wait for that gentleman. Like if it was a male like employee, he'll wait for him. Or I'll get yeah. asked like, do you even work here? And I'm wearing the same uniform. Like it literally says the name of the company. Like, you know what I mean? Was, yeah. Why would I write up for this company? But can I help you? Like, da 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 you know so it was very challenging but one of the greatest takeaways that i took from like my manager um was that i have to know how to pick my battles and know what to answer to so an example of that would be if somebody came in and did the same thing there was a gentleman one time who came in and said i would rather wait for this male employee instead or you know like let the big man talk i noticed that he was carrying a fuse in his hand and so instead of acknowledging the ignorance that he said i just looked at the fuse and assumed that's what he was in for because probably blew out. So I said, looks like your fuse blew out. I'm like, what, what's the, like, what's the number on it or whatever? He's like, Oh, you know what that is? Like, it's like, you're like, (laughs) you know what I mean? So stuff. Yeah. I didn't reply to that. I just said, it's in this aisle and I can assist you with it. That's it. So I just had to learn how to like be like, how to excel in being the underdog, you know, or being, for example, like, wow, you have really good English. I remember one customer said that to me. I said, you too. She's like, I was born here. I was like, so was yeah, I. Yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just like, yeah. I was trying to be nice. So I'm like, so I wasn't? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so those are the kind of microaggressions that people don't understand. There's people, they, yeah. you walk around with these stereotypes or an idea of what you think I am versus what I actually am. So Alberta has recently seen several incidents in recent months of attacks on Muslims, including assaults against women wearing hijabs. You experienced this firsthand in Calgary, not once, but twice. What happened? All right. So the first time was my first pregnancy with my daughter, and I was around seven months pregnant, and I was going to the bottle depot up in the Northeast. And so long story short, I had to park in front of the door. Not like it was still a spot like I could park in um, because I sustained an injury when I was pregnant. And so and when you're seven months, it's very difficult to walk. So I grabbed the bottles and stuff, and there was a, uh, a white male and his son. And they started making comments and stuff. I tried, I couldn't really make up what they were saying, but they were giving me like really mean looks and stuff. So I just tried to ignore them. I put the bottles into the shopping cart and I went inside. As I'm trying to go inside, he got upset and he shoved past me because in his eyes, he came first even though I didn't have as much bottles as he did. Uh, so I didn't really care. I was like, okay, go ahead. So he goes ahead. He picks the line that he's in. So when I go in, I notice there's another like sub, like sub, another attachment to the building that's also taking recycling, and there was no line there. So I waddle my way there. And as I'm about to start putting the bottles on the, on the belt, this guy actually came and shoved, like he like rammed his shopping cart into my shopping cart and it actually hit my belly. Like oh. I was shocked. Like, and the people that were working there are Indian descent. Well, the guy who saw that he was so shocked. He's like, sir, you can't do this. Like he was so like upset and he immediately came and assisted me and stuff like that. But it was so like shocking. Like I didn't see it coming, you know, where's that guy's mother? Like, that's what I, <laughs> like, like, where is the guy that raised him? Where's the woman that raised him? You know? I have no idea. I have no idea. But like the thing about being vigilant all the time and trying to, you know, it's when you have your guard down. The one time you have your guard down, you think you could just put like recycling, you know, normally. And it's like that one time, let me just like 
You know what I mean? And that's when I think it hits you. Like it hits, it hits you so much harder. It's just like, I remember going in my car and I was shaking. I had to literally, I couldn't even drive. Like I had to wait literally 30 minutes and I tried calling my husband at the time. It was like, he's at work. My brothers are at work. Like it was so difficult, but it like, I was just shaking. Like I couldn't even trust myself to be driving because I couldn't believe just what happened. Right. And I'm like, worried. is my baby kicking? Can I feel her kick? Should I go to the hospital? Should I go to the doctor? Like, you know, like just all these fears come and race through your mind. The second instance that happened was right after I gave birth to my daughter. Um, it was not even like, I think a month or two. And it was at a dollar store. I was with my mom. She came because, you know, first baby, all that. And yeah. because of COVID, they're not opening every till. They're opening every other till to maintain the six feet distance. And so... As we were being rung up, the lady at the end of the till was ring was saying like the next person in line can come through. I wasn't paying attention because obviously I was trying to put the stuff in there, like into the till, whatever, to the lady so that the cashier can assist me. This man, instead of just saying, ma'am, can you please just like move your stroller a little bit to the side just so I can squeeze past you? He literally just, this is a white male. He literally just shoved my baby in, like my baby in the stroller, shoved it right against the cashier desk. And the lady that was listening to me was actually a white lady. And she was like, did I, did this just happen? Like, did I just see what I just saw? And I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I called the cops. I was absolutely fuming. Um, But yeah, those were the two instances where I've actually experienced this in Calgary, Alberta, which is really shocking, you know? And for the listener, yeah, that you can be doing something as pedestrian, like big, fully pregnant or with a baby, you know, in tow, something as pedestrian as bringing your bottles or trying to check out and that you're the victim of violence like that, you know, in Canada, in Canada. Like this is a baby in a stroller. This is not items in a shopping cart. You know what I mean? You try to pass through like, oh, can I help you move your shopping cart? You know what I mean? Unbelievable. Thank you. So sorry that that happened. And thank you so much for sharing it. So people out there can know what the actual lived experience is. Now, listen, you've been in therapy for a few years um, and you've started, uh, you started therapy for another mm-hmm. reason, which was a major life event, but it's in therapy that you realize that all these experiences actually had an impact on you. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Event? So the experience that I'm, um, the reason that I went to therapy, uh, almost recently was because of a miscarriage. I had a miscarriage and I, it was a really big major event. I'd never had that. It was, I lost my baby at eight weeks. I had no heartbeat and Mm, I wanted to just make sure that I was able to process things in a healthy manner and everything like that. The biggest takeaway that I had in that situation when I was going through and I was talking to my therapist was the feeling of not feeling like you're enough. Um, and so it's so interesting because I came in talking about that, not realizing that I was carrying this weight for so long, you know, about not feeling enough. Like mm-hmm. when she was asking me like, well, what evidence do you have or experiences do you, do you feel like actually validate that you're not enough? And suddenly all of it comes out, right? The bullying, the the yeah. school bus, you know, working in retail, like how you work so much harder than anybody else, especially any like white male employee. And it's like, just mm-hmm. even be recognized like you're a human. You know what I mean? It's so difficult, you know, like um, it's not easy because he doesn't have the challenges that I have to. Like he can easily just help a customer and you're trusted. Right. Me, I have to prove yeah. I have, you know, like I, I don't know, first prove you your know, work. I there. have to go jump through so many hoops. <laughs> but I'm I'm grateful regardless because it built my resilience and my work ethic and discipline. But that was the biggest thing for me, like was not realizing that this I am I am enough, you know? Um, and these circumstances in life do not define me or my worth, you know. Uh, but they can rather shape me for the better, you know. Uh, and so that was like the biggest uh, takeaway. So I remember towards the end of my therapy sessions with my therapist, she's like, we went back to the first session, which was the question that I asked, which is what's the purpose behind my pain, right? And so I was, t- I told her, I was like, well, I think I have that answer now. I think the purpose was for me to go through this experience with my miscarriage, with losing my baby, was I guess for me to birth a new version of myself, you know? Oh, that's beautiful, Shema. 
And man, there's nothing, there's no better lesson for everybody listening than coming through all that and, and being able to find your lessons in it and get to that point where you can say, I am enough. I'm so glad that you came to share that with us today, Shema. Thank you so much for your time. No, absolutely. I just cannot believe whoever his mother and father are, like, like look at what you've raised. Yeah, but you know, it really goes to 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 speak about the the lack of humanity when it comes to racism. You know what I'm saying? Like, once again, you know, I can't make you love me, the color of my skin, my religion, all that stuff. But Lord, if I'm carrying an unborn child, does that right? not take down your hate a notch? And it, it's it's amazing, and that's why these conversations are so important. You know, anyone who t- turns a blind eye to racism, it's not just about racism; it's about humanity. You know, a racist doesn't care about the mother of an unborn child because their hate is more important than that that um, that cradle of life. It's it's uh, it's really amazing to me. I think what'll sit with me for a while was what Seamus said, which I think you know any BIPOC person can identify with. But also, I mean, it, it racism manifests in different ways depending on your circumstances. But when she said it's when you're you let your guard down that it rattles you the most, that you're so used to walking around with a bit of a guard up all the time. You're always checking, always reading. And the moment you let your guard down and it comes and that's when it it shakes you. And also as somebody carrying an unborn child where you think, as you point out, Jamar, you think that there's a level of decency that at least would present itself, if not for you, then for, for an unborn child. But to know that on top of that, there's also that lack of respect for you and an unborn child would shake you even more. The idea of you are enough, that is something mm-hmm. in my keynotes. Anybody who's heard me do a keynote, you know that's my whole shtick is trying to convince people that they're enough because everybody's walking around out there with this feeling that they aren't. The fact that she could get there and that part of her karate practice was for, was not the fact that she could kick your butt. It was just for the mental wellness of in her mind knowing I am going to do everything to talk my way out of this situation and I am going to deflect these blows. But I know 100% when push comes to shove, I'm going to lay this person down if they persist. The fact that she could find that strength of just that knowledge is what freed her up to say, yes, I'm enough and I am going to be okay. That was such a beautiful message of hope. Yeah, incredible story. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more with our next guest about this idea of how it how it can wear on your mental health, this idea of always having to prove. Our next guest has not only faced Islamophobia, but also deals with it from the intersection of being a Black woman. We're going to talk to Shelby Daigle next. In February of 2019, Shelby Daigle stepped out of her home to grab a coffee, but ended up being hit by a truck in what she says was a deliberate attempt by two individuals to harass and harm her. Shelby has faced violence and discrimination navigating the world as a Black, visibly Muslim woman. She's also the editor-in-chief of MuslimLink, an online hub for Muslim Canadians. Here to share her story is Shelby Daigle, joining us from Ottawa. Shelby, you were born and raised in Ottawa. You are of mixed heritage. Your mom is white. Your dad is Black. He's from Nigeria. And you've said how you had a few experiences early in life which shaped you, made you feel like you didn't fit in. Uh, One was with the now disbanded Canadian neo-Nazi white supremacist organization called the Heritage Front. Uh, And this would have been one of your, I mean, really impactful uh, interaction. And this is based on anti-Black racism. How did that leave you feeling? Um, So yes, this was in the early 90s. And um, a lot of people just don't remember, but in Ottawa, there was something called Heritage Days. So the Heritage Front actually organized to come to Ottawa and specifically decided to recruit in low-income neighborhoods. And I was born and raised in in low-income housing. So they were specifically going into our our neighborhoods very visibly and trying to recruit people. Um, It didn't work out really well because um, my neighbors weren't really having it, but it, it led to actually violent confrontations. And, you know, they were very openly spouting, sort of, um, you know, calling, say, people like my mom a race traitor and very much the sense of um, if you were of color, you weren't welcome there. And it was also really strange, too, because they, they were allowed to rent out the Boys and Girls Club um, to have a concert. So it was a very it was a very mixed messaging around whether this was something that was accepted or not by my mainstream society. 
And then it all culminated in a big riot on Parliament Hill. Um, so, you know, the message of that was, you know, there were people who were against them and, and, but the fact that it, you know, led to a violent clash, um, really, again, I would say it didn't so much make me feel like I didn't fit in. It made me feel like I was in danger. Um, and I think that's kind of why it was such a critical moment. Um, that moment, and then also, um, sort of in the same context around the same time, um, the Somalia affair and, um, the footage that was coming out how, um, you know, we had peacekeepers who went and, you know, deliberately tortured uh, a teenage Somali boy and then took pictures of it. And then there was all this video footage as well that they had taken of calling um, Somali people the N-word and, and dressing up in blackface. And, you know, also in, in the investigation to that, it was, it was clear that there was actually some white supremacist activity in the military. So I would say both those things happening at the same time um, really made me feel I was in danger in Canada. So beyond just not fitting in, um, you know, when you're mixed race, you always kind of feel a bit, a bit out of it. But that that was livable. But when you realize that actually people, people would actually go out of their way to hurt you and harm you, um, that becomes a, a very different story. Shelby, what was your mental health like when you were younger? Initially, you know, you've brought up this idea of being afraid based on a couple of those experiences. What, what, where was your mental health at? Because I come from a family where there was abuse, I was raised by my, my, my mother's family, which was white, and there was abuse in general. It was, it was a very abusive family. Eventually, people went to jail. Um, I guess you could say I've always had the sense that I couldn't really be safe with people. So in some ways, you know, for different reasons. So initially it was just, okay, my family is violent. And then I could see, okay, the society is violent. <laughs> so I would say that I always had a bit of a distress with people and it led to a certain degree of social anxiety, which affected me um, throughout my school days. But definitely by the time I, I reached high school, I was able to kind of overcome it and become quite extroverted and, and you know, take on a lot of leadership roles. So um, I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that I, I have pretty serious social anxiety kind of underlying um, my mental health since I was young. Shelby, one of the things I find fascinating about your story is the intersections of gender. So you're a woman, uh, you mm -hmm. are of mixed race, and you are a visible Muslim woman. And yes. talk to me about how those intersections impacted your mental health. Yeah, I think definitely as a woman, um, there is always that sense of being sometimes a bit in danger. And, and that definitely was the case in terms of this, the abuse I faced um, as a child as well in my family. Um, but also it's interesting in terms of the reality of being a, a, a black woman. So even before I wore hijab, you know, my hair was a problem. It was something that people would comment on, like complete strangers would comment on. It was something I felt was very pleased in the school setting and even in community settings. So when I started wearing hijab, it was interesting because it wasn't actually really that different. In some ways, I actually felt people maybe accepted my hijab a bit more because that was seen as a bit more professional than, say, having natural short black hair, which I, my hair is naturally short and, and quite obviously, you know, um, quite, my hair makes it quite obvious that I'm of African descent. So it, it was an interesting sort of intersection around that in terms of just kind of knowing that as a woman, you're supposed to present in a certain way. And just because I was a black woman, I was never going to present in the way I was supposed to. But then when I started wearing hijab, um, I definitely started getting read as an immigrant more so than I had been before. What did that look like? Like, how did you how did you tell how could you tell that that's how you were being treated? What happened to you? It was actually quite interesting. It was because people would start trying to explain more things culturally to me. Because I think at the time, we have to understand that like most people's perception of Black people in Canada would be either that they're African-Americans or from the Caribbean. So even though they might be immigrants, they might be from somewhere else, they're Western, right? Whereas um, right. presenting as Muslim um, meant you're presenting as, as foreign in this very non-Western sense, right? So I'd have people explaining women's rights to me or explaining cultural norms to me. And I'd be like, I, I know all this. You realize that prejudice looks looks quite different. So people might be very comfortable with one group. It doesn't mean they'll be very comfortable with another group. So Shelby, skipping ahead a few years, you worked with the auto police. You were an administrator in their diversity and race relations section with the Community Police Action Committee. And you quit this job after a few years, you say because of the toll it took on your already compromised mental health. So what were you facing in your workplace? I was facing um, 
a lot of intersectional issues around discrimination um, from both the volunteer community members who were part of it, who represented a diversity of, of backgrounds. And then, and then I, I actually tolerated that for years. I was there for over seven years and um, because I felt I was, you know, kind of doing something or at least making things a bit easier for some of the other members. But then it was actually really when, when I felt um, discrimination issues from, from the police members themselves that it really hit me. And I think, again, it's an example of just uh, the complexity of identity because um, I was facing a lot of Islamophobia um, from, I would say, some of the community members um, that was really quite extreme. Again, like Islamophobia, it's a very, it's a very complex form of discrimination that has, you know, there's that sort of anti-immigrant, you know, xenophobia aspect to it. But there's also, I would say, a certain paranoia around almost like you're a spy. Like really I was, I was being accused of being a spy. You have to understand this is actually common. This is a common manifestation of Islamophobia. And, and that's why it's so important that we, we develop a much more complex understanding. Um, uh, it's, it's very similar almost to like McCarthy era, this idea that you, 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 mu you know, and that's what I would say in my experience of anti-black racism, you know, the assumptions of, of, of being a black person is that you are not intelligent, right? And, and it could affect, affects you at work, it affects you in so many things. There's so much stress of trying to prove to people that you are intelligent and that you could be black and intelligent and there's nothing inherent about being black that means you're not intelligent. Um, whereas with Islamophobia, the issue was more that I had to, no one would believe that I wasn't really part of some sort of global conspiracy. And like, it was, it's so stressful for people to, you know, and, and to realize that people are like, well, I'm not going to like completely be on your side. Like, I'm going to try to like say I agree with them a bit too, because I can't be seen. It's like, and you just realize that level of distrust that is there in a variety of people. Right. And, and this is all, this is all people of color. This wasn't white people. Right. Um, so it's, imp I think it's important to understand that Islamophobia is a very complicated um, manifestation of things. It you know, existed before summer 11th. I think the British have had some of the best analysis of what Islamophobia looks like, but how much there's just a complete dislevel level of distrust. You can't possibly mean what you say, right? You're always pretending to be something else, right? And if we let you in, you're going to bring it, you're a Trojan horse and you're going to bring in something else. And so it, it's incredibly stressful to operate um, in a work environment like that. It's incredibly stressful. But I think the disturbing thing, the thing that really was just, just pushed me over the edge was that after we were able to sort of nullify the, the influence of, of the people who were really pushing forward that agenda, I had to deal with um, police who had a serious problem with, with black, black people, particularly black people who had backgrounds from low-income communities kind of having their voice and actually getting at doing the work that the committee was supposed to do. I feel like a lot of times when it, we talked about discrimination, we never want to talk about the class issue and it ends up meaning that you're marginalized. And that has a huge effect on mental health issues because you realize that yeah. at the end of the day, people only want to care about discrimination when it has to do with a certain group of people who from a certain class background who are going to play a certain game, you know, but if you actually want to talk about the complexity of the issue, people really don't want to do it. And um, yeah, so already I, um, was having mental health issues because my mother had, had died by suicide. So I already wasn't in a good place. And I just was like, I'm done. Cause I, I realized I, I wasn't really yeah. going to accomplish anything. There was no point in me risking my mental health anymore because I wasn't accomplishing anything. There was not a real desire for change. Something that you said earlier, Shelby, I want to ask you about, and that's this idea of always having to prove that you are mm -hmm smart enough, that you belong, that you understood the culture. What does that do to your mental health so always, every day, and in, in you never know when the circumstance is going to come up, feel like you have to prove something? Um, it has a definitely a serious strain. A lot of it has to do with how much support you have. I've realized, you know, over the years, um, definitely with the experiences I had with the police, you really have to have a support network of people who understand what you're going through. And um, so I think I was lucky in that, you know, when I, I, I've come, it's come through in a moment, particularly in terms of the black community in Canada, we're having this real moment where we're more openly voicing the complexity of our experiences and, and being allowing ourselves to be messy and raw, because before it was all about we're perfect, we're perfect, we're perfect, because that's how we'll be able to convince mm -hmm. them that we're not stupid and we're not lazy, you know, mm -hmm. and now it's like, you know what, I had a breakdown, I'm a mess, like, you know, 
and I'm going to be messy on Twitter and all these things. And it's actually allowed for a lot more community building, particularly amongst black women to be like, this is hard and it's really bad for our mental health. Right. And it's, and it's really exhausting. And, and so I think I'm lucky in that I've built a community of, of black women and women from other communities where I just um, can be honest about what my experiences have been and, and not have to pretend that I'm okay. Because I think, the reality is there's so much stigma around mental illness, particularly mental illness that leads to having, uh, you know, I, I live on disability, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm disabled because of my mental illness. Um, I've come from a low income background. So all those things, those are highly stigmatized, right? It's one thing to be like, I have some mental health issues, but I also have a PhD and I have this great job. If you don't have that, it becomes very, very difficult to name those things. And even members of your own community don't necessarily want to be associated with you. But luckily, mm. you, you know, more and more, the more I was more vocal after I, I quit my job and, and, and even again after the, you know, the um, attack when I was hit by a car, which we'll get into, um, it was yeah. great to see more people come out. And also be honest, a lot of people had been lying about their their status. You know, there's a lot more people I, I, and my networks I realized who are also on disability and coping with things, but just had hidden it because there's just so much to get within our own communities because we're trying to prove that we're worthy that we can't be honest that, you know, sometimes you can't work and sometimes you are low income and sometimes you didn't finish school and sometimes you didn't those things because you have to prove and have to represent for the whole community that you are worth something. Shelby, I want to move into something you've just alluded to. Uh, mm-hmm. As a visibly Muslim woman who wears hijab, you've talked about living with severe generalized anxiety disorder where you feel mm-hmm that you're not safe stepping out of Mm -hmm. your home. But a couple of years ago, on one of those days where you did step out to grab a cup of coffee, Mm -hmm. do you mind sharing what happened? Yeah, so I was walking to my local Starbucks. um, (laughs) And uh, it was really something I pushed myself to do every day. Um, After I left my um, position at work, I I had to, I kind of, my social anxiety can get um, to a point where I become quite agoraphobic. So the thing I did every day was that I would go to the local Starbucks and like, and I, while I was walking in there, there's sort of this very long um, crosswalk so people can see you coming for a while. And so I was, I was, I was, while I was walking this big sort of black pickup truck, it saw me coming and I, and it then sort of drove into me. Right. So I, it drove into me as I was crossing and there was no, they didn't have the right of way. And, and then um, so it, it, it sort of um, kind of hit and twisted my, my wrist a bit. And, you know, I was also sort of pushing it back. It was a very strange, strange, weird thing when you realize. So, like, okay, so it just, hit you. So you made, con- you made contact. We made contact and the car was pushing me. Like it was, it was, it hit me and it was pushing me. And I was able to get around the car. And then I look in at the drivers because they don't drive off. They're still there. And then they give me the finger. <laughs> And then they wait to go. So they they didn't need to move. They weren't like on their way somewhere. They just wanted to to hit me and push me. But yeah, like and and then um, I ended up posting on my social media what had happened to me. And then I got all these comments. You know, I had a lot of people commenting, call the police. And at that point, I honestly had no interest in calling the police um, because of my relationship with the police. I didn't... um, I had worked with the police. I knew right. that there were serious problems around reporting hate crimes um, and it really not being properly investigated. And also I just didn't really want to re-engage with the police at the time I'd, I'd quit and really didn't feel comfortable with them. I did report it online because they had created an online ability to report it. So I reported online, but in the process of posting on social media, what ended up happening was that I had people commenting and then directly inboxing me that they had had similar experiences, both in, Ottawa, so the, uh, the area of Ottawa I'm in, there have been several experiences with a similar looking vehicle in our area that seemed to be deliberately trying to intimidate visibly Muslim women. And then I also had had, had friends in, in other cities um, saying that they had had similar experiences with vehicles. And this, it became really clear to me that there's, this is going on right? Like there's something really disturbing going on and it's probably just underreported as a form of violence, but that people are using cars and to attack us. Shelby, that, that is a horrific experience. Thank you for sharing that. And, um, I'm sorry that you went through this after that incident. Um, a friend reached out to you to make sure that you were okay. And you said how important it was for you that she did that. What did she say and why was it important, especially for your mental health? 
Um, she actually, she told me not to harm myself. <laughs> and she's somebody who knows of my own history with um, suicidal ideation and, and suicide attempts. My mother had died by suicide, um, which had, you know, really kind of been the underlying mental health issue that had kind of um, followed me through um, my work with the police. And so um, I, that was actually really important because particularly for those of us who live with suicidal ideation, um, incidents like this can actually be very triggering. Um, again, I, I can only talk to my experience, but I, th I, I know that myself when I, I, it's almost like if I get messages from the environment that I'm not welcome or like it, my life is kind of a problem to other people and, and I'm a burden to other people, it um, can very much trigger suicidal ideation or attempting. And so definitely, you know, people hating you enough to, you know, hit you with a car, like with a truck, you know, it's kind of a message, you know, like, um, and so um, I'm just really glad. For one thing, I'm glad that she just went out there and just said, don't harm yourself, because I think, you know, particularly anyone who supports, you know, people who know people have issues with suicide ideation, and I've always been very open about that within my social circle. I do public education and, and talks about, you know, um, coping with, with suicidal ideation. I find there's still a reluctance to just come out and say, hey, you have problems with this, you know, because I think there's just so much of a, of a fear of just bringing it up is going to cause problems. Or I think, you know, there's just a lot of discomfort with the idea of suicidal thoughts, you know. Um, so I was really glad that she just named it. It was just so direct um, and recognized that this would be a trigger. And I think that's just important for people to understand. A, a lot of people have underlying mental health issues. So when you experience hate in whatever form, um, it can trigger those underlying issues. And, and definitely, you know, these very um, direct forms of hate can, can be a trigger. And it was the kind of support I needed. It needed it more than being told, go tell, you know, tell the police, you know, all these sort of things. I'm not saying people shouldn't do that, but if we think about how we support victims of other types of, of violence, say of sexual violence, um, you know, going to the police is an option. It's definitely something that might be necessary, but we offer a lot of other supports before that, like mental health supports and someone to talk to. And I think we need to be doing that also for people who are victims of hate. We need to look at the mental health support, the emotional support people need before always making it about legal matters and policing and the government, because, you know, those things are necessary, but it, you, why are we not emotionally supporting people and, and understanding how it's impacting their lives and their mental health? We, we need to be doing that. Because um, I think at the end of the day, a lot of mental health issues are connected to societal, you know, issues of injustice, right? Um, you know, I, I, I talk about like, you know, depression and oppression, you know, they have that same root, you're being pressed down upon, you're being put down. And a lot of sort of research into depression is, is, is that it can actually sometimes result from the different forms of oppression we experience in our lives. We really have not made the focus on the people who survive this and their stories of, of how they've coped with it um, and its mental health impact and, and how it, it, it impacts their lives after the incident. And we need to do that to better both understand the mental health impact, but also to understand how hate is, is so active and, and working out in our, in our communities and in, our, in Canadian society. Shelby, that is an excellent point for us to end this discussion on. Thank you so much. You've said it so well. Thanks for sharing your story and for coming on today. Thank you for having me. You know what I found so uh, interesting, and I'm so glad that she shared this with us, Shelby, was that idea of anti-Black racism and then what Islamophobia looked like in her life. And uh, it's, it's a really good perspective to have because it makes me think, have I ever done that? Have I ever looked at somebody who's in you know, um, is wearing their religious clothing and, and thought, maybe you're not uh, aware of cultural norms. Maybe you're not as aware. And this is, this young woman's born and raised in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that idea of, as you say, Candy, having to explain or having to prove that I understand, even though I may not dress the same as you, I, I get it. I understand. We all are, we're all in the same. Here's the irony of what you said about uh, Anne-Marie, when you said about an immigrant and when are you not an immigrant anymore, this is a real bone of contention for me. I cannot stand it when people say I'm of settler ancestry because you are not a settler, folks. Okay, if you look up the definition of settlers, 
Settlers are people who come to an abandoned piece of land where there is no culture, there is no society, there's no structure set up, and you you live there and you set up social and cultural structures. That's mm. what a settler is. These folks that came over on boats and landed here, there was already a social structure, a religious structure, a, a cultural structure. They were immigrants. And I remember saying to my, my history teachers, listen, these Vietnamese people that came here in the 80s on boats, either they're, they're either settlers or they were British boat people. But you can't call, you can't separate them because they are the same thing. They are boatloads of people coming here to where there is already something established. So the fact that these folks who are newcomers, I don't care how many generations you've been here, you are not a settler. You did not settle this land. You are an immigrant to this land. The fact that they will so quickly say, this is my land, and then turn to someone else who's been here for a generation or two and say, you're an immigrant. Ooh, it's a bone of contention for me. Nobody settled this land. That's amazing. It's it's problematic because that's what's in textbooks. Yep. Like that's what's being taught as facts. Like yep. when you open up a textbook, it says the settlers. Yeah. Like and and that is that's decades and hundreds of years yep. of education that has to be unwound. Yeah, because it does not meet the definition of settler. It, it does, does not own. meet the standard of the definition. You're you're absolutely yeah. right about that. Coming up next, we're going to hear from psychotherapist Zainab Abdullah. She's going to help us understand some of the mental health impacts these experiences like Shelby's can have. Earlier in the show, we heard from women about their experiences dealing with Islamophobia in all aspects of their lives. And here to help us understand the mental health impact of these traumas is psychotherapist Zainab Abdullah. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Jamar. Thank you for having me here. Of course, of course. So you work with clients from the Muslim community in your practice. So you've seen this firsthand. Tell us how Islamophobia affects the well-being of Muslims. Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm Muslim identifying myself and I predominantly work with a lot of folks who are also Muslim identifying. Um, Really, the picture that comes into the room often when folks are seeking therapy, and for many folks, this is, you know, one of the first times seeking therapy because of the stigma and the barriers to seeking mental health support. But a lot of what shows up in the room is really um, experiences um, and symptoms of trauma survivors, essentially. Um, There's this um, term that's often used in psychotherapy uh, field or when we work with trauma and this idea of complex trauma. Um, So whereas, you know, like your guest Shema was um, sharing, where she had these really, really terrifying um, experiences of firsthand Islamophobic, violent um, uh, attacks, there are many folks, it you know, Muslims are not a monolith and the experiences are on a spectrum. And so you have experiences like the ones that she had from a very young age, all the way until she's a mother and pregnant, to experiences that are more micro in nature, or for a lot of the men, also Shema kind of touched um, on that, it may be more of the vicarious trauma. So they might have not experienced it themselves directly, or they might have very well experienced it, but might have seen it. Um, kind of happen to their mothers who are visible um, Muslimas or visible Muslim women um, or in the workplace. And so the picture that shows up often is that it's a nervous system that's overwhelmed. Our nervous systems are not designed to, um, they're designed to help us through threatening situations. We can experience a threat and then kind of recover from that. But our nervous systems are not designed to chronically be exposed to that level of threat. And so you'll find there's a lot of, um, you know, difficulty managing stress, overwhelm, and something that was touched on, and I think Candy touched on that, this idea of not enough, is that trauma at its core disconnects us from ourselves, from the world around us, and there's a sense of threat that's ongoing. And so it really disrupts the way that we view ourselves. And for many Muslim folks that I work with, a lot of times what happens is Islamophobia has been so normalized, such a normal part of their experience, um, like the experiences that Shema had shared, that there's an internalization of these, of, um, of the hate, 
of the hostility that they don't even distinguish that this is a part of their trauma response. They see it as just a part of who they are, that there's something wrong with them, that I'm not doing well at school. I'm not doing well. I get really overwhelmed and shut down at work. I don't, so on and so forth. So internalizing some of these um, negative beliefs as well as the disruption in the nervous system and managing stress, the overwhelmed anxiety. So if I could just get a little clarity on that, it sounds like it sounds like these uh, these folks are dealing with a a baseline of traumatic experience as like the context for their whole regular day experience, which sounds really stressful. Right, most definitely, yeah. And and I love that you touched on this context of the baseline because the baseline is um, it's also historical. Um, many folks who are Muslim identifying come, even if they're born in Canada, they come from histories of, um, you know, complicated migration experiences that their parents have inherited. Um, and, and so already there's a vulnerability in the nervous system to stress and then the ongoing that you're touching on. Athena, you talk about the idea of threat and where a lot of people will go when they feel threatened is a place uh, of safety. We've heard of from many guests on this show about how culture and faith play an important role in supporting their mental health, like the food they eat or the community spaces or where they worship. But how does one respond when those are the very aspects that trigger the stress? Like, you know, I look at Quebec City, for example, the place of Mm -hmm. worship, the place of community, the place Mm -hmm. where you uh, Mm -hmm. express your faith to the fullest became a crime scene, was was the target, the very target of, of hate and of murder. How how do you talk to your clients about how to respond? Well, you know, it's, um, I mean, naturally, I think our nervous systems need to be prepared for threat when something that heinous happens, when something that terrible takes place. And um, and it's very important that you touched on this idea that this is a place where, for many of us as Muslim identifying, where we find safety and spirituality is a part of our healing and connection um, to our ancestors, to um, our sense of who we are. And so there's often what happens is that, like all traumatic incidences, is we go through a period where threat is incredibly high in the body. We fear that, but that there is then a sense of resilience that we can access in having to re-enter spaces, to create new spaces, to seek new spaces that are also connected to our faith um, and that can allow us to feel, um, uh, you know, a sense of safety. Because, I mean, I can't tell a client that what you're perceiving is not right. That is the threat of often with traumatic incidents, it may happen and then we can kind of work with it and because it's not going to happen again or the chances of it not happening again. But for many of us who are Muslim identifying, the reality is that these incidences do happen. And so even our nervous systems need to be to a certain extent on guard. And so it, to heal, we really come as a community. And this is where it's not just an individual um, kind of approach to healing. It's a communal way of coming together to recreate safety, resilience, um, and actually um, also on an institutional level, of course, to be able to to kind of have that, um, to have uh, a sense of safety for everyone in the community. I, I love that because in restorative justice, uh, within the indigenous community, our goal is never to punish the offender. It is to restore peace in the community where the offense took place. Um, so that's very, that sounds to me like a very indigenous uh, approach. I have a question I wanted to ask, but I think, Anne-Marie, you, you wanted to jump in with something else there? I wanted to ask Zainab about this idea of fear. And I hear this a lot. It's mostly young women, Muslim women that I have a chance to speak with. And they talk about the idea of feeling afraid when you go out, afraid when I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Or we heard, you know, from Shema saying, you know, I let my guard down and that's when I felt it the worst. So this idea of fear, how do you counsel your clients through saying, I'm just afraid to go to school or I'm afraid to head to university or I'm afraid to go to the grocery store? What kind of words do you offer them? So I often work, um, my approach is really body-centered. And so a lot of the work that I do with folks is how we can help to create safety um, on a nervous level uh, perspective. So, you know, sometimes I could tell you that you're safe, but your nervous system doesn't know that you're safe. 
And so a lot of it comes with grounding um, and creating uh, predictable routines or um, safe places that we can go to, whether we can imagine them uh, or we can carry them in sense, in music, in folks around us who feel safe for our nervous systems, places on like I work with a lot of students and, you know, after an incident like the hate crime, let's say in, in London, um, Ontario, um, it's normal to experience fear and not to be going out. So that's not something that I would challenge. It's quite normal for a few weeks for that to be quite heightened in your body and even ongoing, obviously, because of the vulnerability. But it's slowly using to ground themselves and find safety in you know, connecting to the floor, connecting to their breath, movement, people, having safe places around them to kind of work with fear because fear is a very powerful response in the body. And kind of further to that notion of fear, I've heard you use the expression vicarious trauma. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, vicarious trauma is when we experience a traumatic response um, to a, an event or a situation without having to directly, uh, without having to have been directly there at the place. So many times as we talk, I mean, obviously, Muslim women are um, visible, a lot, a lot of at least visible Muslim women. So they are the, you know, directly uh, targeted uh, by these hate crimes. A lot of times, though, there are some Muslims who are not, let's say, visible, or some men who may not present as Muslim or don't observe, um, let's say, fasting, praying publicly. And so they may not be as targeted. But what happens is that when we have these um, hate crimes, when we have this Islamophobia being um, um, happening in this way within our communities, we too, because we identify with folks who share our experience or are part of our community, also experience a traumatic response to that. And often that's really minimized. So a lot of folks that come into the therapy room are experiencing traumatic response, but there's almost a guilt that happens because it's like a survival uh, guilt that happens. Like, I should not be feeling this. I wasn't the one that was attacked or I'm not wearing a hijab. I should not be feeling um, this amount of distress. But the reality is that, you know, again, our nervous systems are not built to distinguish between, okay, I was directly there or this is someone that I really identify with and is a part of my community. And, you know, my mom, let's say, wears it and could also be uh, potentially threatened. And so we react in the same way. It's just as disruptive um, to our systems in the same way. And what would your advice be to those within the Muslim community wanting to reach out for help but are actually finding it difficult to navigate some of the barriers that are maybe existing in that, in that community? Yeah, thank you. So um, for bringing that up, because often stigma is actually a difficult, is um, a huge barrier within the community and outside of the community. So you can imagine with Islamophobia being so prevalent, it doesn't really feel safe for many Muslim identifying folks seeking therapy, even within uh, the greater um, context and healthcare system. And so there are there are three steps that I usually kind of always think of. The systemic, obviously, being able to have more representation, um, not just training, but more representation to make it safer to have people that you identify with. On a community level, I think there needs to be a lot of psychoeducation, which is already uh, happening on multiple levels in terms of the impact of Islamophobia and other forms of stress and other intersections, I think race, identity, um, sexual orientation with the Muslim identity and how that impacts us. And then on an individual level, seeking support um, in, you know, it could be Facebook groups. Um, there's an organization, Aziza for Women, Women's Health and Women's Hands, um, Muslim Hotlines. And then creating your own even spiritual spaces or supportive spaces could be really helpful. Um, and then you can seek, if it's uh, private therapy, you can also seek it by looking at um, just Muslim, Muslim meds, um, offers a lot, a list of Muslim identifying practitioners. Um, uh, and those would be my recommendations and then learning about the impact uh, of trauma so that you can work with a health professional and a community level to help you uh, heal some of the impacts of that. 
Well, you've given us so, so much to think about. Thank you so much for being here today. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You know what I'm really loving about this podcast? Uh, you know, I've worked in anti-racist work for most of my adult life. I live my life as a queer Indigenous woman. And I think I know it all. I think I've heard it all. And then I hear somebody tell a story about getting rammed at seven months pregnant. And I realize, wow, there's so many more experiences I don't even know about. Yeah, you and I are tracking the same. I feel the same way about that. And that is one of the things I like best about this is that although racism can affect every BIPOC person, it's going to, it's going to, the experiences, as you say, are going to be very different. And so it's really important to hear those conversations that people have in community, have them out loud, which is what I love so much about this podcast. Uh, and, you know, talking about those experiences, we want to thank all of our guests for coming on. It is a lot of work to go back into those experiences and to share with us, with everybody listening how that made you feel in that moment to relive all of that. And so we just want to give a special thanks to everyone who comes on as always. Also, if I could give a thank you to everyone who's just listening, you know, um, a reminder that, you know, in listening, we, we learn and we're all learning together uh, about things that don't always get spoken about because there's not really the, the best spaces at times. So this is a good space to listen and learn. Um, we also want to remind folks that the podcast, even though there are some therapeutic aspects to it. This is not therapy. It's not a substitute for therapy. And if you need, please reach out to mental health professionals if you need that help. For more information on that and what you heard on the show, head over to the podcast show notes or visit letstalk.bell.ca where you will find links to resources, helpline numbers, and so much more. And remember to subscribe and share so you know when the new episodes drop. That's it for today. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of From Where We Stand conversations on race and mental health.